be sure to follow Send Me to Sleep on your preferred podcast player so you never miss an episode and a good night's rest. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew, and I'm so pleased you've joined me tonight and taken this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading the final chapters of The Extraordinary Adventures of Arsène Lupin by Maurice LeBlanc. In tonight's story, Arsène Lupin will have a chance encounter with Sherlock Holmes. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath. And settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy. And your breath soften. As we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Sherlock Holmes arrives too late. It is really remarkable, Valmont, what a close resemblance you bear to Arsène Lupin. How do you know? Oh, like everyone else, from the photographs, no two of which are alike, but each of them leaves the impression of a face, something like yours. Horace Velmont displayed some vexation. Quite so, my dear Devan. And believe me, you are not the first one who has noticed it. It is so striking, persisted Devan, that if you had not been recommended to me by my cousin Destavan, and if you were not the celebrated artist whose beautiful marine views I so admire, I have no doubt I should have warned the police of your presence in Depay. This sally was greeted with an outburst of laughter. The large dining hall of the Chateau de Thibermes Mill contained on this occasion, besides Valmont, the following guests. Father Gilles, the parish priest, a dozen officers whose regiments were quartered in the vicinity and who had accepted the invitation of the banker Georges Devan and his mother. One of the officers then remarked, I understand that an exact description of Arsène Lupin has been furnished to all the police along this coast since his daring exploit on the Paris Haver Express. I suppose so, said Devan. That was three months ago, and a week later. I made the acquaintance of our friend Vilmont at the casino, 
and since then, he has honoured me with several visits, an agreeable preamble to a more serious visit that he will pay me one of these days, or rather, one of these nights. As the guests laughed, they entered the Hall of Guards, a vast, high-ceilinged room that took up the entire lower portion of William's Tower. Georges Devan had collected incomparable treasures there from the lords of Thimbermersnil, chests, credences, andrines and chandeliers. Stone walls bore magnificent tapestries. Gothic windows had benches and small coloured glass panes set in lead frames. A Renaissance bookcase stood between the door and left window with Thim Burmersnil in gold letters on its pediment, and the family device, Faisir Kevur, below. After lighting cigars, Devan resumed the conversation. And remember, Velmont, you have no time to lose. In fact, tonight is the last chance you will have. How so? asked the painter who appeared to regard the affair as a joke. Devan was about to reply when his mother mentioned to him to keep silent, but the excitement of the occasion and a desire to interest his guests urged him to speak. Bah, he murmured, I can tell it now, it won't do any harm. The guests drew closer and he commenced to speak with the satisfied air of a man, and he commenced to speak with the satisfied air of a man who had an important announcement to make. Tomorrow afternoon at four o'clock, Sherlock Holmes, the famous English detective, for whom such a thing as mystery does not exist, Sherlock Holmes, the most remarkable solver of enigmas the world has ever known, that marvellous man who would seem to be the creation of a romantic novelist, Sherlock Holmes will be my guest. Immediately, Devan was the target of numerous eager questions. Is Sherlock Holmes really coming? Is it so serious as that? Is Arsène Lupin really in this neighbourhood? Arsène Lupin and his band are not far away. Besides the robbery of the Baron Cahorn, he is credited with the thefts at Montigny, Grutche, and Grassville. And now it is my turn. Has he sent you a warning, as he did to the Baron Cahorn? No, replied Devan. He can't work the same trick twice. What then? I will show you. He rose, and pointing to a small empty space between the two enormous folios on one of the shelves of the bookcase, he said, There used to be a book there, a book of the 16th century, entitled Chronique de Thibermersnil, which contained the history of the castle since its construction by Duke Rollo on the site of the former feudal fortress. There were three engraved plates in that book, one of which was a general view of the whole estate, another 
the plan of the buildings, and the third, I call your attention to it particularly, the third was the sketch of a subterranean passage, an entrance to which is outside the first line of ramparts, while the other end of the passage is here, in this very room. Well, that book disappeared a month ago. The deuce, said Velmont. That looks bad, but it doesn't seem to be a sufficient reason for sending for Sherlock Holmes. Certainly, that was not sufficient itself, but another incident happened that gives the disappearance of the book a special significance. There was another copy of this book in the National Library of Paris, and the two books differed in certain details relating to the subterranean passage. For instance, each of them contained drawings and annotations, not printed, but written in ink and more or less effaced. I knew those facts, and I knew that the exact location of the passage could be determined only by a comparison of the two books. Now, the day after my book disappeared, the book was called for in the National Library by a reader who carried it away and no one knows how the theft was effected. The guests uttered many exclamations of surprise. Certainly, the affair looks serious, said one. Well, the police investigated the matter, and, as usual, discovered no clues whatever. They never do, when Arsène Lupin is concerned in it. Exactly and so I decided to ask the assistance of Sherlock Holmes, who replied that he was ready and anxious to enter the lists with Arsène Lupin. What glory for Arsène Lupin, said Velmont. But if our national thief, as they call him, has no evil designs on your castle, Sherlock Holmes will have his trip in vain. There are other things that will interest him such as the discovery of the subterranean passage. But you told us that one end of the passage was outside the ramparts, and the other was in this very room. Yes, but in what part of the room? The line which represents the passage on the chart's end here, with a small circle marked with the letters TG, which no doubt stands for Torgilorm. But the tower is round, and who can tell the exact spot at which the passage touches the towers? Devan lighted a second cigar and poured himself a glass of Benedictine. His guests pressed him with questions, and he was pleased to observe the interest that his remarks had created. Then he continued, The secret is lost. No one knows it. The legend is to the effect that the former lord of the castle transmitted the secret from father to son on their deathbeds until Geoffrey, the last of the race, was beheaded during the revolution in his nineteenth year. That is over a century ago. Surely someone has looked for it since that time. Yes, but they failed to find it. After I purchased the castle, I made a diligent search for it, 
but without success. You must remember that this tower is surrounded by water and connected with the castle only by a bridge. Consequently, the passage must be underneath the old moat. The plan that was in the book in the National Library showed a series of stairs with a total of 48 steps, which indicates a depth of more than 10 metres. You see, the mystery lies within the walls of this room, and yet I dislike to tear them down. Is there nothing to show where it is? Nothing. Mon Devan, we should turn our attention to the two quotations, suggested Father Gelli. Oh, exclaimed Monsieur Devan, laughing. Our worthy father is fond of reading memoirs and delving into the musty archives of the castle. Everything relating to Thimbermasnil interests him greatly. But the quotations that he mentions only serve to complicate the mystery. He has read somewhere that the two kings of France have known the key to the puzzle. Two kings of France. Who were they? Henry IV and Louis XVI. And the legend runs like this. On the eve of the Battle of Arques, Henry IV spent the night in this castle. At eleven o'clock in the evening, Louise de Tancarville, the prettiest woman in Normandy, was brought into the castle through the subterranean passage by Duke Edgard, who, at the same time, informed the king of the secret passage. Afterward, the king confided the secret to his minister, Sully, who in turn relates the story in his book, Royales Economes de Tat without making any comment upon it, but linking with it this incomprehensible sentence. Turn one eye on the bee that shakes, the other eye will lead to God. After a brief silence, Velmont laughed and said, Certainly, it does throw a dazzling light upon the subject. No, but Father Gelli claims that Sully concealed the key to the mystery in this strange sentence in order to keep the secret from the secretaries to whom he dictated his memoirs. This is an ingenious theory, said Velmont. Yes, and it may be nothing more. I cannot see that it throws any light on the mysterious riddle. And was it also to receive the visit of a lady that Louis XVI caused the passage to be opened? I don't know, said Monsieur Duvan. All I can say is that the king stopped here one night in 1784, and that the famous iron casket found in the Louvre contained a paper bearing the words in the king's own writing, Thimbermasnil. 3411. Horace Wilmore laughed heartily and exclaimed, At last, and now that we have the magic key, where is the man who can fit it to the invisible lock? Laugh as much as you please, Monsieur, said Father Gelli, but I am confident the solution is contained in those two sentences.
and someday we will find a man able to interpret them. Sherlock Holmes is the man, said Monsieur Devan. Unless Arsène Lupin gets ahead of him. What is your opinion, Velmore? Velmore rose, placed his hand on Devan's shoulder, and declared, I think that the information furnished by your book, and by the book of the National Library, was deficient in a very important detail, which you have now supplied. I thank you for it. What is it? The missing key. Now that I have it, I can go to work at once, said Velmore. Of course, without losing a minute, said Devan, smiling. Not even a second, replied Velmore. Tonight, before the arrival of Sherlock Holmes, I must plunder your castle. You have no time to lose. Oh, by the way, I can drive you over this evening. To Dupay? Yes, I'm going to meet Monsieur and Madame d'Androl and a young lady of their acquaintance who are to arrive by the midnight train. Then, addressing the officers, Devan added, Gentlemen, I shall expect to see all of you at breakfast tomorrow. The invitation was accepted, the company dispersed, and a few moments later, Devan and Velmont were speeding towards Depay in an automobile. Devan dropped the artist in front of the casino and proceeded to the railway station. At twelve o'clock, his friends alighted from the train. A half hour later, the automobile was at the entrance of the castle. At one o'clock, after a light supper, they retired. The lights were extinguished, and the castle was enveloped in the darkness and silence of the night. The moon appeared through a rift in the clouds and filled the drawing room with its bright white light, but only for a moment. Then the moon again retired behind its ethereal draperies, and the darkness and silence reigned supreme. No sound could be heard, save the monotonous ticking of the clock. It struck two, and then continued its endless repetitions of the seconds. Then three o'clock. Suddenly, something clicked, like the opening and closing of a signal disc that warns the passing train. A thin stream of light flashed to every corner of the room, like an arrow that leaves behind a trail of light. It shot forth from the central flute of a column that supported the pediment of the bookcase. It rested for a moment on the panel opposite, like a glittering circle of burnished silver, then flashed in all directions, like a guilty eye that scrutinizes every shadow. It disappeared for a short time, but burst forth again as a whole section of the bookcase revolved on a pivot and disclosed a large opening, like a vault. A man entered carrying an electric lantern. 
he was followed by a second man, who carried a coil of rope and various tools. The leader inspected the room, listened a moment, and said, Call the others. Then eight men, stout fellows with resolute faces, entered the room, and immediately commenced to remove the furnishings. Arsène Lupin passed quickly from one piece of furniture to another, examining each, and according to its size or artistic value, he directed his men to take it or leave it. If ordered to be taken, it was carried to the gaping mouth of the tunnel and ruthlessly thrust into the bowels of the earth. Such was the fate of six armchairs, six small Louis XV chairs, a quantity of Aubusson tapestries, some candelabras, paintings by Fragonard and Natier, a bust of Hudden, and some statues. Sometimes, Lupin would linger before a beautiful chest or a superb picture and sigh. That is too heavy, too large, what a pity. In forty minutes, the room was dismantled, and it had been accomplished in such an orderly manner, and with as little noise as if the various articles had been packed and wadded for the occasion. Lupin said to the last man who departed by way of the tunnel, You need not come back. You understand that as soon as the autovan is loaded, you are to proceed to the Grange at Rackerfoot. But you, patron, leave me the motorcycle. When the man had disappeared, Arsène Lupin pushed the section of the bookcase back into its place, carefully effaced the traces of the men's footsteps, raised a portier, and entered a gallery, which was the only means of communication between the tower and the castle. In the centre of this gallery, there was a glass cabinet, which had attracted Lupin's attention. It contained a valuable collection of watches, Snuff boxes, rings, chantelaines, and miniatures of rare and beautiful workmanship. He forced the lock with a small jimmy and experienced a great pleasure in handling those gold and silver ornaments, those exquisite and delicate works of art. He used a large bag to collect the knickknacks and filled his coat, waistcoat, and trouser pockets. Suddenly, he heard the noise of someone approaching and took refuge behind a window embrasure. A woman descended the stairs and went towards the dismantled cabinet, then walked towards him. He hoped she would not detect his presence, but she came closer and he could hear her heart throbbing. Hesitating for just a moment, her trembling hand drew aside the curtain. They stood face to face. Arsène was astounded. He murmured involuntarily, You, you, mademoiselle. It was Miss Nelly. Miss Nelly, his fellow passenger on the transatlantic steamer, who had been the subject of his dreams on that memorable voyage.
who had been a witness to his arrest, and who, rather than betray him, had dropped into the water the Kodak in which he had concealed the banknotes and diamonds. Miss Nelly, that charming creature, the memory of whose face had sometimes cheered, sometimes saddened the long hours of imprisonment. It was such an unexpected encounter that brought them face to face in that castle at the hour of the night, that they could not move, not utter a word. They were amazed, hypnotized, each at the sudden apparition of the other. Trembling with emotion, Miss Nellie staggered to a seat. He remained standing in front of her. Gradually, he realized the situation and conceived the impression he must have produced at that moment with his arm laden with knick-knacks and his pocket and linen sack overflowing with plunder. He was overcome with confusion, and he actually blushed to find himself in the position of a thief caught in the act. To her, henceforth, he was a thief, a man who puts his hand in another's pocket, who steals into houses and robs people while they sleep. A watch fell upon the floor, then another. These were followed by other articles which slipped from his grasp one by one. Then, actuated by a sudden decision, he dropped the other articles into an armchair, emptied his pockets and unpacked his sack. He felt very uncomfortable in Nellie's presence and stepped towards her with the intention of speaking to her, but she shuddered, rose quickly and fled towards the salon. The portier closed behind her. He followed her. She was standing trembling and amazed at the sight of the devastated room. He said to her at once, Tomorrow, at three o'clock, everything will be returned. The furniture will be brought back. She made no reply, so he repeated, I promise it, tomorrow, at three o'clock. Nothing in the world could induce me to break that promise. Tomorrow, at three o'clock. Then followed a long silence that he dared not break, whilst the agitation of the young girl caused him a feeling of genuine regret. Quietly, without a word, he turned away, thinking, I hope she will go away. I can't endure her presence. But the young girl suddenly spoke and stammered, Listen, footsteps, I hear someone. He looked at her with astonishment. She seemed to be overwhelmed by the thought of approaching peril. I don't hear anything, he said. But you must go. You must escape. Why should I go? Because you must. Oh, do not remain here another minute. Go. She ran quickly to the door leading to the gallery and listened. No, there was no one there. Perhaps the noise was outside. She waited a moment, then returned reassured. But Arsène Lupin 
had disappeared. As soon as Monsieur de Van was informed of the pillage of his castle, he said to himself, It was Velmont who did it, and Velmont is Arsène Lupin. That theory explained everything, and there was no other plausible explanation. And yet, the idea seemed preposterous. The castle was in a lively commotion, as the gardeners, police, and villagers searched for clues. The doors and windows showed no sign of being disturbed, but it was clear that the thief had used the secret passage. However, there was no footprints or unusual marks on the walls. A curious fact was revealed in the commotion. The famous chronique was returned to the library, and beside it was the stolen volume from the National Library. At eleven o'clock, the military officers arrived, and Ivan greeted them with his usual gaiety. One guest was missing, Relmont. At twelve o'clock, he finally arrived, and Ivan exclaimed, Ah, here you are. Why, am I not punctual? asked Velmont. Yes, and I am surprised that you are, after such a busy night. I suppose you know the news. What news? You have robbed the castle. Nonsense, exclaimed Velmont, smiling. Exactly as I predicted. But... First, escort Miss Underdown to the dining room. Mademoiselle, allow me. He stopped as he remarked the extreme agitation of the young girl. Then, recalling the incident, he said, Ah, of course. You met Arsène Lupin in the steamer before his arrest. And you are astonished at the resemblance. Is that it? She did not reply. Velmont stood before her, smiling. He bowed. She took his proffered arm. He escorted her to her place and took his seat opposite her. During the breakfast, the conversation related exclusively to Arsène Lupin, the stolen goods, the secret passage, and Sherlock Holmes. It was only at the close of the repast when the conversation had drifted to other subjects, that Velmont took any part in it. Then he was, by turns, amusing and grave, talkative and pensive, and all his remarks seemed to be directed to the young girl, but she, quite absorbed, did not appear to hear them. Coffee was served on the terrace, overlooking the court of honour and the flower garden in front of the principal façade. The regimental band played on the lawn, and scores of soldiers and peasants wandered through the park. Miss Nelly had not forgotten, for one moment, Lupin's solemn promise. Tomorrow, at three o'clock, everything will be returned. At three o'clock, and the hands of the great clock in the right wing of the castle now marked twenty minutes to three. In spite of herself, 
Her eyes wandered to the clock every minute. She also watched Velmont, who was calmly swinging to and fro in a comfortable rocking chair. Nelly waited anxiously for Arsène Lupin to arrive at the castle at the appointed hour. She wondered if he would actually show up with so many people around and the police officers conducting their investigations. Despite her doubts, she trusted his promise. The clock struck three, and Horace Velmont checked his watch. Soon after, two army wagons arrived at the park gate and stopped in front of the main entrance. A commissary sergeant got out and asked for Monsieur Devan. He soon appeared and saw his packaged furniture, pictures, and ornaments under the canvas cover of the wagons. When questioned, the sergeant produced an order that he had received from the officer of the day. By that order, the second company of the 14th Battalion were commanded to proceed to the crossroads of Halu in the forest of Aquas, gather up the furniture and other articles deposited there, and deliver them to Monsieur Georges Devan, owner of the Thimberners Nil Castle. At three o'clock, signed Colonel Buvel. At the crossroads, exclaimed the sergeant, we found everything ready, lying on the grass, guarded by some passers-by. It seemed very strange, but the order was imperative. One of the officers examined the signature. He declared it a forgery, but a clever imitation. The wagons were unloaded, and the goods restored to their proper places in the castle. During this commotion, Nelly had remained alone at the extreme end of the terrace, absorbed by confusion and distracted thoughts. Suddenly, she observed Belmont approaching her. She would have avoided him, but the blostrade that surrounded the terrace cut off her retreat. She was cornered. She could not move. A gleam of sunshine, passing through the scant foliage of a bamboo, lighted up her beautiful golden hair. Someone spoke to her in a low voice. Have I not kept my promise? Arsène Lupin stood close to her. No one else was near. He repeated in a calm voice. Have I not kept my promise? He expected a word of thanks, or at least some slight movement that would portray her interest in the fulfilment of his promise. But she remained silent. Her scornful attitude annoyed Arsène Lupin, and he realised the vast distance that separated him from Miss Nelly, now that she had learned the truth. He would gladly have justified himself in her eyes, or at least pleaded intenuating circumstances, but he perceived the absurdity and futility of such an attempt. Finally, dominated by a surging flood of memories, he murmured, Ah, how long ago that was. You remember the long hours on the deck of the Provenance. Then, you carried a rose in your hand, 
a white rose like the one you carry today. I asked you for it. You pretended you did not hear me. After you had gone away, I found the rose, forgotten, no doubt, and I kept it. She made no reply. She seemed to be far away. He continued. In memory of those happy hours, forget what you have learned since. Separate the past from the present. Do not regard me as the man you saw last night, but look at me, if only for a moment, as you did in those far-off days when I was Bernard d'Andresi for a short time. Will you please? She raised her eyes and looked at him as he requested. Then, without saying a word, she pointed to a ring he was wearing on his forefinger. Only the ring was visible, but the setting, which was turned towards the palm of his hand, consisted of a magnificent ruby. Arsène Lupin blushed. The ring belonged to Georges de Vannes. He smiled bitterly and said, You are right. Nothing can be changed. Arsène Lupin is now and always will be Arsène Lupin. To you, he cannot be even so much as a memory. Pardon me. I should have known that any attention I may now offer you is simply an insult. Forgive me. He stepped aside, hat in hand. Nelly passed before him. He was inclined to detain her and beseech her forgiveness, but his courage failed, and he contented himself by following her with his eyes, as he had done when she demanded the gangway to the pier at New York. She mounted the steps leading to the door and disappeared within the house. He saw her no more. A cloud obscured the sun. Arsène Lupin stood watching the imprints of her tiny feet in the sand. Suddenly, he gave a start. Upon the box which contained the bamboo, beside which Nelly had been standing, he saw the rose, the white rose which he had desired but dared not ask for. Forgotten, no doubt, it also. But how? Designedly or through distraction? He seized it eagerly. Some of its petals fell to the ground. He picked them up, one by one, like precious relics. Come, he said to himself. I have nothing more to do here. I must think of my safety before Sherlock Holmes arrives. The park was deserted, but some gendarmes were stationed at the park gate. He entered a grove of pine trees, leaped over the wall, and, as a shortcut to the railroad station, followed a path across the fields. After walking about ten minutes, he arrived at a spot where the road grew narrower and ran between two steep banks. In this ravine, he met a man travelling in the opposite direction. It was a man about fifty years of age, tall, smooth-shaven, 
and wearing clothes of a foreign cut. He carried a heavy cane, and a small satchel was strapped across his shoulder. When they met, the stranger spoke with a slight English accent. Excuse me, monsieur, is this the way to the castle? Yes, monsieur, straight ahead, and turn to the left when you come to the wall. They are expecting you. Ah. Yes, my friend Devan told us last night you were coming, and I am delighted to be the first to welcome you. Sherlock Holmes has no more ardent admirer than myself. There was a touch of irony in his voice that he quickly regretted, for Sherlock Holmes scrutinised him from head to foot with such a keen, penetrating eye that Arsène Lupin experienced the sensation of being seized, imprisoned, and registered by that look more thoroughly and precisely than he had ever been by a camera. My negative is taken now, he thought, and it will be useless to use a disguise with that man. He would look right through it. But I wonder, has he recognized me? They bowed to each other as if about to part, but at that moment they heard a sound of horses' feet, accompanied by a clinking of steel. It was the gendarmes. The two men were obliged to draw back against the embankment, among the brushes, and avoid the horses. The gendarmes passed by, but, as they followed each other at a considerable distance, they were several minutes in doing so, and Lupin was thinking. It all depends on that question. Has he recognized me? If so, he will probably take advantage of the opportunity. It is a trying situation. When the last horseman had passed, Sherlock Holmes stepped forth and brushed the dust from his clothes. Then, for a moment, he and Arsène Lupin gazed at each other, and, if a person could have seen them at that moment, it would have been an interesting sight, and memorable as the first meeting of two remarkable men, so strange so powerfully equipped, both of superior quality, and destined by fate, through their peculiar attributes, to hurl themselves one at the other, like two equal forces that nature opposes, one against the other, in the realms of space. Then the Englishman said, Thank you, monsieur. You're quite welcome, replied Arsène Lupin. They parted. Lupin went towards the railway station, and Sherlock Holmes continued on his way to the castle. The local officers had given up the investigation, several hours of fruitless efforts, and the people at the castle were awaiting the arrival of the English detective with a lively curiosity. At first sight, they were a little disappointed on account of his commonplace appearance which differed so greatly from the pictures that had formed of him of their own minds. He did not in any way resemble the romantic hero, the mysterious and diabolical personage that the name of Sherlock Holmes had evoked in their imaginations. However, 
Monsieur Devanne exclaimed with much gusto. Ah, Monsieur, you are here. I am delighted to see you. It is a long-deferred pleasure. Really, I scarcely regret what has happened, since it affords me the opportunity to meet you. But how did you come? By the train. But I sent my automobile to meet you at the station. An official reception, eh? With music and fireworks? Oh, no, not for me. That is not the way I do business, grumbled the Englishman. This speech disconcerted Devan, who replied with a forced smile. Fortunately, the business has been greatly simplified since I wrote to you. In what way? The robbery took place last night. If you had not announced my intended visit, it is probable the robbery would not have been committed last night. When then? Tomorrow or some other day. And in that case? Lupin would have been trapped, said the detective. And my furniture would not have been carried away. Ah, but my goods are here. They were brought back at three o'clock. By Lupin. By two army wagons. Sherlock Holmes put on his cap and adjusted his satchel. Devan exclaimed anxiously. But Monsieur, what are you going to do? I am going home. Why? Your goods have been returned. Arsène Lupin is far away. There is nothing for me to do. Yes, there is. I need your assistance. What happened yesterday may happen again tomorrow, as we do not know how he entered, or how he escaped, or why, a few hours later, he returned the goods. Ah, you don't know. The idea of a problem to be solved quickened the interest of Sherlock Holmes. Very well, let us make a search, at once, and alone, if possible. Devan understood, and conducted the Englishman to the salon. In a dry, crisp voice, in sentences that seemed to have been prepared in advance, Holmes asked a number of questions about the events of the preceding evening and inquired also concerning the guests and the members of the household. Then he examined the two volumes of the Chronique, compared the plans of the subterranean passage, requested a repetition of the sentences discovered by Father Jelly, and then asked, Was yesterday the first time you have spoken those two sentences to anyone? Yes. You had never communicated then to Horace Vilmont? No. Well, order the automobile. I must leave in an hour. In an hour? Yes, within that time, Arsène Lupin solved the problem that you placed before him. I placed before him? Yes, Arsène Lupin, or Horace Vilmont. The same thing. I thought so. Ah, the scoundrel. Now, let us see, 
said Holmes. Last night at ten o'clock, you furnished Lupin with the information that he lacked, and that he had been seeking for many weeks. During the night, he found time to solve the problem, collect his men, and rob the castle. I shall be quite as expeditious. He walked from end to end of the room in deep thought, then sat down, crossing his long legs, and closed his eyes. Devan waited, quite embarrassed. Thought he, is the man asleep, or is he only meditating? However, he left the room to give some orders, and when he returned, he found the detective on his knees, scrutinizing the carpet at the foot of the stairs in the gallery. What is it? he inquired. Look, there, spots from a candle. You are right, and quite fresh. And you will also find them at the top of the stairs, and around the cabinet that Arsène Lupin broke into, and from which he took the bibliots that he afterwards placed in this armchair. What do you conclude from that? Nothing. These facts would doubtless explain the cause for the restitution, but that is a side issue that I cannot wait to investigate. The main question is the secret passage. First, tell me, is there a chapel some two or three hundred meters from the castle? Yes, a ruined chapel, containing the tomb of Duke Rollo. Tell your chauffeur to wait for us near that chapel. My chauffeur hasn't returned. If he had, they would have informed me. Do you think the secret passage runs to the chapel? What reason have... I would ask you, monsieur, interrupted the detective, to furnish me with a ladder and a lantern. What? Do you require a ladder and a lantern? Certainly, or I shouldn't have asked for them. Devan, somewhat disconcerted by this crude logic, rang the bell. The two articles were given with the sternness and precision of military commands. Place the ladder against the bookcase to the left of the word Timberners Nil. Devan placed the ladder as directed, and the Englishman continued. More to the left. To the right. There. Now, climb up. All the letters are in relief, aren't they? Yes. First, turn the letter I one way or the other. Which one? There are two of them. The first one. Devan took hold of the letter and exclaimed, Ah, yes, it turns towards the right. Who told you that? Sherlock Holmes did not reply to the question. He continued his directions. Now, take the letter B. Move it back and forth as you would a bolt. Devan did so, and, to his great surprise, it produced a clicking sound. Quite right, said Holmes. Now we will go to the other end of the word, Thimbermasnil. Try the letter I, and see if it will open like a wicket. With a certain degree of solemnity, Devan seized the letter, 
It opened, but Devan fell from the ladder, for the entire section of the bookcase, lying between the first and last letters of the word, turned on a pivot and disclosed the subterranean passage. Sherlock Holmes said, coolly, You are not hurt. No, no, said Devan, as he rose to his feet. Not hurt, only bewildered. I can't understand now. Those letters turn. The secret passage opens. Certainly. Doesn't that agree exactly with the formula given by Sully? Turn one eye on the bee that shakes, the other eye will lead to God. But Louis the Sixteenth asked Devan. Louis the Sixteenth was a clever locksmith. I have read a book he wrote about combination locks. It was a good idea on the part of the owner of Thimberma's Nil to show his majesty a clever bit of mechanism. As an aid to his memory, the king wrote 3411, that is to say, the third, fourth, and eleventh letters of the word. Exactly, I understand that. It explains how Lupin got out of the room, but it does not explain how he entered. It is certain he came from the outside. Sherlock Holmes lighted his lantern and stepped into the passage. Look, all the mechanism is exposed here, like the works of a clock, and the reverse side of the letters can be reached. Lupin worked the combination from this side, that is all. What proof is there of that? Proof? Why? Look at that puddle of oil. Lupin foresaw that the wheels would require oiling. Did he know about the other entrance? As well as I know it, said Holmes. Follow me. Into that dark passage. Are you afraid? No, but are you sure you can find the way out? With my eyes closed. At first they descended twelve steps, then twelve more, and farther on, two other flights of twelve steps each. Then they walked through a long passageway, the brick walls of which showed the mark's successive restoration, and, in spots, were dripping with water. The earth, also, was very damp. We are passing underneath the pond, said Devan. Somewhat nervously. At last, they came to a stairway of twelve steps, followed by three other of twelve steps each, which they mounted with difficulty, and then found themselves in a small cavity cut in the rock. They could go no further. The deuce, muttered Holmes. Nothing but bare walls. This is provoking. Let us go back said Devan. I have seen enough to satisfy me. But the Englishman raised his eye and uttered a sigh of relief. There he saw the same mechanism and the same word as before. He had merely to work the three letters. He did so, and a block of granite swung out of place. On the other side, the granite block formed the tombstone of Duke Rollo, and the word Thumberma's nil was engraved on it in relief. Now, 
they were in the little ruined chapel, and the detective said, The other eye leads to God. That means to the chapel. It is marvellous, exclaimed Devan, amazed at the clairvoyance and vivacity of the Englishman. Can it be possible that those few words were sufficient for you? Bah, declared Holmes. They weren't even necessary. In the chart in the book of the National Library, the drawing terminates at the left, as you know, in a circle, and at the right, as you do not know, in a cross. Now, that cross must refer to the chapel in which we are now standing. Poor Devan could not believe his ears. It was all so new, so novel to him. He exclaimed, It is incredible, miraculous, and yet of a childish simplicity. How is it that no one has ever solved the mystery? Because no one has ever united the essential elements, that is to say, the two books and the two sentences. No one but Arsène Lupin and myself. But Father Gillet and I knew all about those things, and likewise, Holmes smiled and said, Monsieur Devan, everybody cannot solve riddles. I have been trying for ten years to accomplish what you did in ten minutes. Bah, I'm used to it. They emerged from the chapel and found an automobile. Ah, there's an auto waiting for us. Yes, it is mine, said Devan. Yours? You said your chauffeur hasn't returned. They approached the machine. Monsieur Devan questioned the chauffeur. Edouard, who gave you the orders to come here? Why, it was Monsieur Velmont. Monsieur Velmont, did you meet him? Near the railway station, and he told me to come to the chapel. To come to the chapel? For what? To wait for you, Monsieur, and your friend. Devan and Holmes exchanged looks, and Monsieur Devan said, He knew the mystery would be a simple one for you. It is a delicate compliment. A smile of satisfaction lighted up the detective's serious features for a moment. The compliment pleased him. He shook his head as he said, A clever man. I knew that when I saw him. Have you seen him? I met him a short time ago, on my way from the station. And you knew it was Horace Velmont? I mean, Arsène Lupin. That is right. I wonder how it came. No, but I suppose it was, from a certain ironical speech he made. And you allowed him to escape? Of course I did. And yet, I had everything on my side such as five gendarmes who passed us. Sacre bleu, cried Devan. You should have taken advantage of the opportunity. Really, monsieur, said the Englishman, haughtily. When I encounter an adversary like Arsène Lupin, I do not take advantage of chance opportunities. I create them. But time pressed, 
and since Lupin had been so kind as to send the automobile, they resolved to profit by it. They seated themselves in the comfortable limousine. Edouard took his place at the wheel, and away they went towards the railway station. Suddenly, Devan's eyes fell upon a small package in one of the pockets of the carriage. Ah, what is that? A package? Whose is it? Why, is it for you? For me? Yes, it is addressed, Sherlock Holmes, from Arsène Lupin. The Englishman took the package, opened it, and found that it contained a watch. Ah, he exclaimed with an angry gesture. A watch, said Devan. How did it come there? The detective did not reply. Oh, it is your watch. Arsène Lupin returns your watch. But, in order to return it, he must have taken it. Ah, I see. He took your watch. That is a good one. Sherlock Holmes's watch stolen by Arsène Lupin. Mon Dieu, that is funny. Really, you must excuse me. I can't help it. He roared with laughter, unable to control himself, after which he said, in a tone of earnest conviction, A clever man indeed. The Englishman never moved a muscle. On the way to Depay, he never spoke a word, but fixed his gaze on the flying landscape. His silence was terrible, unfathomable, more violent than the wildest rage. At the railway station, he spoke calmly, but in a voice that impressed one with the vast energy and willpower of that famous man. He said, Yes, he is a clever man, but some day... I shall have the pleasure of placing on his shoulders the hand I now offer you, Monsieur Devan, and I believe that Arsène Lupin and Sherlock Holmes will meet again some day. Yes, the world is too small. We shall meet. We must meet. And then...